on our way home on Friday, and Fiona, my wife, turned to me and she said, uh, said Dennis, did you know, did you know that Christchurch used to have two services with over 300 people in them on a Sunday? Uh, I smiled because I did know. <laughs> but she had just found this out, so I, I wanted to celebrate the information she'd found out. I was like, oh, please do tell me more. She says, yes, so the morning service used to have about 300 people, and the evening service used to have about 400 people. I was like, ah, okay. She's like, okay. Then it got quiet, and I said to her, and the church used to have galleries so people would fit in the services. Now, the interesting question is, are there less people or more people in Chiswick? More people in Chiswick. Uh, so, so really, we should be full to the rafters. Something's gone on. There's been a change in something. We'll return to that in a second. Let's go back to the 300 and the 400. Some of those things that I looked into, let me know that the earlier service was usually for the gentry. And those who were at home preparing Sunday lunch came for the evening service. So you had more servants coming to the evening service than you had um, noble people, so to speak. And I put that in quotes. Yeah? You had more. And... Uh, uh, what would happen in those days was someone would leave wherever they were from to go and work somewhere far away. And so you would miss home and the church and the people that you grew up in. And Mothering Sunday, which is the Sunday that we have, was the Sunday off you got to go home, to go to your mother church to go and say hi to everybody and share peace with everybody. So you'd have this thing happen, I assume, maybe, where the peace would be awkward every Mothering Sunday because there'd be so many new faces <laughs> who have returned and so many old faces who are missing, whichever church you went into. And a new connection will be born somewhere far, far and far away. So I'm saying this to say this. Today during the peace, yeah, shake hands with those that you see. But as we go into communion, perhaps pray for those we don't see. Yeah. Um, we can celebrate the fact that we are here. But let's not lose sight of the empty seats. Because alas, that is our calling. To introduce those who we live alongside, work alongside, study alongside, I don't know, laugh alongside to get to know the God of glory. Because until they do, they're living without breathing in. Yeah? Is that okay? Yeah? So share the peace with the familiar faces that you have. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking us to draw into a place of prayer straight after so that the Lord can do something among us again. Because there are more people in Chiswick. And if they all turned up to church, there would be no room, and that would be a good thing. Okay, to mothers again. Um, the most defining moment in a person's life 
is the day they were born. Anyone disagree? <laughs> it, it's, it, it steers the direction of your life. Essentially, if you're not born, you don't live. Yeah? So from that point, we can say thank you to our mothers, isn't it? Well done. Wherever they are. Wherever they are. Whatever happens after that, whatever happens after that is consequential. It happens after the day you were born. When they ask you how old you are, you don't tell them the day you turned five. You tell them from the day you were born. Mine is January the 14th, 1986. Yeah. I'm waiting for Haley's Comet, 2062. That's what I'm waiting for. Um, it's a defining moment in your life, and it is what steers your life. For some of the people that we live alongside currently today, the defining moments in their lives are different points, and you might resonate with some of these. Um, some of us here, like for my parents, Independence Day in Uganda is a very important moment for them. They're really happy about that. They, they remember that greatly. For some people, it's um, the World Cup winning goal in 1966. That's all they talk about. For some people, it's, it's Trump being elected president or Brexit being voted for, although we're currently living through some interesting times in terms of defining moments. But these are the things that people choose to orient their lives by. Whenever we encounter situations that are either difficult or good, we mark them in our memory. So for some of us, when we fell in love, that's a defining moment in our lives because the course of our lives changed. I was going to go do this, I was going to be a doctor, I was going to do this, and then I fell in love. And then... At I just got drawn to a different, different life. For some of us, oh, I was going to do this and do this and this, but then I had a child, and then that changed the course of my life. For some of us, I was doing this, and then I lost someone, but that changed the course of my life. Whatever you let determine the direction that your life takes becomes central. And actually, regardless of what else happens, that can easily become the tower from which you look at and define who you are very quickly. Yeah. If your life is steered by the relationship that you're in, then you work hard to guard the relationship. And whatever emerges, whatever new event emerges, you, you don't define yourself by it. You define yourself by the relationship. Does that make sense? If you have the child and the child is there, what do you do? You define yourself by the child. Now, whatever else emerges, you go, ah, no, my priority is my child. So this is what's going to define my life. When we enter the book of Philippians, the secret to what Paul is talking about when he says rejoice in chains and in prison and everything happening is that there is a defining moment in Paul's life. And Nicola spoke to us about this last week, where this thing that happened in Paul's life completely colored everything else that had happened before in a different light. So, yes, he was of the right bloodline of a noble family, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Benjamite, or whatever he was, you know. Had he studied, yes, he, stu he did all these things, he achieved so much. He was righteous. But those ceased to be the defining moment for Paul in his life when he set out on the road to Damascus. Something happened to this guy. <laughs> Something that had, had him blind for three days. Someone who was very self-reliant, very confident, uh, was left 
on a, on a road by friends who were afraid of what they had just seen. He probably needed help to find his way to wherever he ended up. He needed, he needed support from other people. And those who knew him before couldn't help him anymore because of what he was saying. Because if they knew him, if they were friends with him, then they knew, let's, let's, let's uh, a, a sort of example would be someone who says, um, I don't think men can do anything good in their lives. And that's their message. So let's eradicate all men. And then at some point, on his way to a city full of men, his mind changes and he goes to ask men for help. Who, when they know this guy is coming to kill us, is going to offer him assistance? No one. The story of the man who God sends to heal Paul's eyes is of trepidation. But God, this is the same guy who was breathing threats. He's been doing this for a while now. Some of us had to flee Jerusalem because of this. You know? So Paul has to depend on others. And then his eyes are opened. And the person he has met begins to tease out of him the scriptures that he's picked up in his learning. So when he gets to the point where, and some dispute this, when he's writing the book of Hebrews, he's picking out from the Old Testament all the things that he had used for a different purpose now, steered by this event. So he's now gone. He has later set up this church. The church is doing its, its growing. Um, he's moved on. He's traveled, and he keeps sort of a relationship with them, finds himself in prison, and he's writing these letters to encourage the church. And you hear him. There is something bubbling in him whenever he speaks that, that just has the texture of someone who has been actually affected by this story of Jesus. It's not, uh, it's not just a philosophical change. There is an actual personal individual change in this man that's changed him from someone breathing murderous threats in anger to someone who is oozing love. And the story in Philippians is of him saying, wow, you guys, you guys are incredible. You sent me stuff. Thank you so much. You know, let me encourage you. Remember Jesus who came from heaven to earth to be like us and be less than us so we could be saved so that he could lift us from death to life. And when he's seated in the heavenly places with the Father, we are there with him. Remember that. And he talks to them about it. And when we encounter the passage from last week, he's saying to them, guys, stop. Stop trying to define yourself by other things. Define yourself by Jesus. Because all those other things, yes, they have merit. But trust me, I tried it. It doesn't work. It's not as good. I count it all rubbish. It's all garbage. It's all garbage. Chapter 4 begins by him saying, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. I've done all these things, they're rubbish, but the thing that I celebrate the most is the fruit of this life that I've led after this event, of which you are one. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm in the Lord. I plead with those among you who have conflict with each other. Solve that. Resolve that. Reconcile. What gives him the right to say that? Because once, yet when he was a sinner and an enemy of God, in fact, yielding the very sword against God's people, the Heavenly Father 
girded up his trousers, his, his skirt, and ran to meet the prodigal son and met him way before the time of repentance in grace and made him a son, an apostle, clothed him, clothed him and gave him a calling in God's kingdom. The God he is defining himself by is the God of reconciliation. The one who doesn't just say, forgive, he says reconcile. Come to a place where peace is what you experience, shalom, which is unity, which is intimacy, which is holy, which is deep, deep peace. This is who you're supposed to reflect. And I'm glad he doesn't name someone in verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Um, Because that can be any of us. It can be any of us. Who are the agents of peace? Paul's companions. Yourselves. Yourselves. If you guide yourself by this principle, this is the fruit. This is the effect. And then, for me personally, the next couple of verses are crucial. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. I brought, um, let it be said that I recommended the Street Bible to the nine o'clock audience. Yeah? Congregation. Yeah? Um, this is how he, they, they interpret verse 4, yeah? Celebrate the boss. <laughs> yeah? Celebrate the boss. I just love that. I love that because what, what's he saying there? He's saying the world could be chaotic. You could be in prison. There could be a thousand indicative votes. You might not know what's going to be happening in the next three months. Absolutely. Yeah? But the defining thing in your life isn't that we have a strange parliament and a strange electoral system. It isn't that people are worrying about what's going to happen next on this earth. No, that's not the defining point. That's not the defining the thing on your compass that points north, that tells you which way is the right way to go. Isn't isn't our electoral system, it isn't the money you have, it isn't the house you live in, it isn't even your health, it's the boss. Because ultimately, heaven and earth will pass away. He sums it up in, in Hebrews by saying, there will be a time of shaking, and everything that shakes will fall away, and the things that won't shake are what will stay, and those will be the inheritance of those who are in Christ. So, if you're defined by things that can shake, what's going to happen when they start to shake? Are you going to rejoice? No, you won't. You will be caught in the tremor of losing the thing that makes you who you are. But if the thing that defines you is strong and stands tall and cannot be moved and cannot be shaken and stands the test of time and takes into eternity, then you will fear no evil, for his rod and his staff, they comfort you. And I kid you not, joy sits on a bedrock of peace. If you don't have peace, you don't get joy. 
You might get happiness, which is that flutter. You're like, yay! And then the next day, you feel hungry again. Joy sits on a bedrock of peace. Peace only comes in the space of being fully reconciled and fully defined by the Father. So, there you are. Rejoice. Celebrate the boss. Celebrate the boss. Celebrate the boss. And what happens when you celebrate the boss? You let your gentleness be evident to all. Because the things that would make you tremble and lose focus and not be bearing this fruit of the Holy Spirit is if your anchor is in something other than the God who gives you that spirit. Your gentleness will be evident to all. The Lord is near. This, this same Christ who makes this change in people's lives and hearts, this same one is the one who will return. And you have to have confidence in that to live from a place of peace. Do not be anxious about anything. Yes, absolutely, because the boss is the boss, is the boss. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If you celebrate him, you can talk to him. Your daddy's always there to listen. He's always there. And, and I love this verse because every Friday, this is the blessing at the end of our communion service. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The hallmark of someone who believes in Jesus isn't uh, our external peace with internal turmoil. It's actually internal peace with external turmoil. That's why it's the peace that passes understanding. How are you so calm in the midst of all this that's going on? I am because I am anchored in something that is steady, that is steadfast, that is firm, that is eternal. And the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gets practical. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, this is the work of going, what is it that's going to anchor me? I now have to practically return my mind to it. I have to do the work. Oh, this person really winds me up, really winds me up. What is true? Okay, when I was a sinner, when I was an enemy of God, he chose to reconcile with me in Christ Jesus. True, trustworthy. Now this is anchoring yourself in a different way. How does this affect how I deal with this person who winds me up? Well, I can never be as wound up by this person as God. I'm pointing at Peter because Peter winds me up. I can, I can never be as wound up by this person as God was wound up by me. I just can't. And if he is able to love me enough to not just forgive, but to reconcile me to him, this is something that is possible by the spirit that he gives me. It's practical. Think on these things and then what does he say? What you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the final word there is, and the God of peace will be with you. 
the God of peace will be with you. And this is not strange to any of us. Um, We all know what it's like to have animosity with someone. It's not a nice feeling. You never call that peace. We all know what it's like. Especially if you meet someone you've had an altercation with, even if it's verbal on the street. You know, before that moment when your Christian sense overrides whatever it is you intend on doing, and you go, okay, I'm going to apologize. It's just not something in, your, in yourself is not right with it. You know, it's not right. So this is practical. This is actually, peace will come to you when you pursue it and seek it. Like Peter says, seek peace and pursue it. It will come to you. If you anchor yourself in this God, this is the outcome. And the practical outworking of that is you now turn to this God to tell you how to act. And you act in accordance with what he says. With what he says. And that makes a change. Um, The most significant moment for anybody is the moment that they are born. Uh, and uh, when I was thinking about today, uh, I, I just wanted, I wanted to ask you to ponder for yourself whether that's happened for you when it comes to this relationship with God. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's easy to have uh, a cultural awareness of, of faith, to be, have been immersed and be around people of faith. But the question of your rescuing from a life and a living internally that did not have an eternal rock as its center is something we rarely, I don't know, maybe it's just me, we rarely engage with. I can easily get swamped into the things that I'm doing and forget that if not for God's intervention in my life, in grace that I was born to the family that I was born in rather than another one, in grace that I was born in the country that I was born in rather than another one, in grace that actually I was surrounded by people who loved and cherished me and taught me the right ways, in grace that I was saved from plenty things that others have had to endure, I never kneel at the cross. And that's even before he comes to meet me as a young adult to say to me, son, what you're doing is wrong. Turn, turn. You are from ashes and to ashes you you shall return. Turn to Christ because I love you and I want you to live out of that love. Before the weeping of that moment, there is already grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And when I don't live out of that gratitude for what God has done for me, I miss out, one, on the peace that it gives me, and two, on the efficacy of my responsibility. Now that I have received grace, and grace, and grace, and grace, what am I giving? What am I doing with it? Because if I love, then I should love. But I rewind back. I'll give us a minute or so before I close in prayer. Just to ponder this and ask whether the defining thing in our lives is this relationship with God. And it may have been two weeks ago. It may have been last week, but it might not be today. 
And I think what I'm asking is bring him back to the center. Be dangerous and move the other gods away. Place the cross. And see what it points towards in your life that maybe God wants to shake away. Let us pray. May a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, come and settle you down. May Christ displace any worry at the center of your life.